If you've enjoyed tonight's episode, please make sure you check out the episode description. There you're going to find links on how you can learn more about this guest, links to connect with them on social media, and how to support the podcast. Remember, I don't get paid to do this. My boss is a bit tight-fisted, but I can say that I work for myself. In short, this show really is all about the guest. If you've enjoyed their interview, please feel free to let them know. You can also tune into my other podcast, Growth from Darkness, which is co-hosted by a lovely lady from Australia. We talk about what trauma responses are and healthy ways to move beyond the past. For more information, just go to growthfromdarkness.com. Welcome back to the podcast. As always, I'm Amanda Blackwood, your host. I have a fascinating person with me today. Her name is Terry Kozlowski. Is that right, Terry? Kozlowski, because I lost the key. Kozlowski. I love that you wrote that out of the phonetic spelling, because I lost key. (laughs) (laughs) That is just, that is such a fun name. Um, But with your background, and we're going to get into that here in just a moment, it's... I'm sure probably an unusual name for you to have. Yes, because yeah. that is my married name. <laughs> I had a feeling I was going to ask, is this, um, yeah, it's married relational. Very cool. It's, it's an interesting last name. It's very neat. Thank you. Um, so tell us a little bit about who you are. Um, start with where you're originally from. Where'd you grow up? I'm originally from uh, Pennsylvania, but I'm an army brat. So I grew up a little bit everywhere. So I started off in Pennsylvania, ended up in Europe uh, for a couple years, and then came back to Maryland and then went back to Pennsylvania. So yeah, I've been a little bit everywhere growing up. Goodness. Yeah, I can, I can definitely relate to that. My father was Air Force. I was actually born in Germany. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> So in your family history, you are one of uh, our very proud uh, Native Americans, right? Yes, I am. Very cool. Um, I, I think you are only the second Native American I've ever had. Uh-oh. You okay? Yep, we're good. Okay. I think you're only the second Native American I've ever had on my program. So this is pretty cool. Good. I'm glad yeah. to be represented. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to have you. Uh, So tell us a little bit about what kind of trauma did you have in your background that kind of uh, threw you in the direction that you've headed in in life? My mother and I have a long history of uh, trauma. So she was traumatized as a child. Uh, Her dad was killed when she was little. And then she was given up for adoption when uh, she was a teenager. And when she was adopted, she was adopted by missionaries. And they were very kind people who wanted to give uh, these three teenage girls uh, a better life. But in doing so, they ripped away her identity. They took away all all the clothes that she came with, all her belongings that she came with, told her she couldn't speak her native language anymore, and really, you know, made her a little white girl, as what my mother called it, uh, and took away who she, her identity. So because her identity was ripped away when she was a teenager, uh, by the time she was 20, she was an alcoholic. And so when I was born, 
I was born into, you know, what my parents had. My dad would have said it was a loving marriage and so would my mother at the beginning. And, but she was already an alcoholic. And because of the alcoholism, I became very aware at a very young age that there were certain things that I needed to do. When mommy got into the special cabinet, uh, she may throw up. So I needed to clean up after her before daddy got home from work. Those types of things. And this was all, my parents separated when I was uh, seven. So this all happened prior to the age of seven, the very codependent behaviors. I also had a sister who was 11 months to the day younger than I am. So, you know, one of those Irish twin things going on. But <laughs> really and truly what that meant was I was always taking care of her as well. So I ended up at a very young age becoming very maternal towards my sister because my mother wasn't as far as taking care of. She loved my sister. She would dote on my sister much more than she did me. But I was the one that was the caregiver. Wow. You so, had to grow up really early. Yes. Yes. So by the time my parents divorced, um, my mother went to live in New Mexico and we didn't see her from the time I was eight until I was 11. And because we live so far away and this was back in the uh, late seventies. Um, and in the summer of 1980, my mother called my dad and said that she was in AA and she wanted to have my sister and I visit. My dad agreed and we went to visit my mother that summer. The first two weeks were fabulous, and some of the best memories I have of my mother happened in those first two weeks, and then she started drinking. And what we didn't know was that she was also now a drug addict, so that made things a little bit more complicated because I was, I was used to the alcohol, and really and truly, you would think that you know it had been five years, uh, almost five years since I had to deal with the alcoholism because my dad had custody of us, but immediately, I mean, just like a snap of a finger that all got triggered and turned back on. And I was pouring drinks and dumping drinks. I was a little hostess when my, cause my mother of course had friends come over because they were supplying the drugs. She was supplying the alcohol. So I was playing hostess and one uh, night everybody was, what I thought passed out. And as when I went to bed, I was locking the door, our bedroom door, now that we had strange people in the efficiency apartment. Yeah. And I ended up waking up with my, a gag in my mouth and my hands and feet tied. Um, my sister was laying next to me in the bed, but I found out that they had drugged her um, and she slept for three days. But I had my mother allowed three men to rape me so that she could get more free drugs while she stood in the corner of the room with her best friend and watched. Oh, my gosh. So. Everybody leaves and she disappears literally for three days. I have no idea where she is. She doesn't. You know, there's not this was way before cell phones. Um, there was, she didn't own a phone in the apartment, so I had no way to call anybody to get a hold of anybody. And my sister was asleep. 
My sister woke up three days later and was very hungry and very upset that we didn't know where my mom was. And all of a sudden, my mom walks in the door like nothing has happened. And we go about our normal Friday afternoon routine, which was went and got her paycheck cashed, got a money order for the rent for the week, bought some groceries and went back to the apartment. But when we get back to the apartment, my mother has our suitcases packed and sitting out on the front stoop and tells my sister and I, I'm 11, my sister's 10, that it's time for us to go home. She closes the door and locks it. And now my sister and I are on the streets of Albuquerque, New Mexico, not a good part of town, by the way. And home is Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Oh. So at this point... My little brain is trying to handle and deal with my sister who's crying because, of course, she's upset. And the last thing my dad said to me before we left on this trip was to take care of my baby sister. And I think that, as a lot of parents do, they tell the oldest child that. And it's really not that child's responsibility to take care of the younger siblings. Right. You're not the parent. I'm not the parent. However, in this particular scenario, I think what that did was gave me something to hold on to, to keep me grounded in the here and now to do what needed to be done. Because I don't, I think that if I was really paying attention to myself, I think I would have gotten lost very quickly. Right. So... I decided that we needed to go to the police because that seemed like the right thing to do. (laughs) And my sister got all upset because she didn't want mommy to get in trouble. Again, that codependent behavior where we are protecting the parent that's harming us instead of trying to do what's in our best interest. So we ended up at my mother's best friend's house where I didn't want to go because she was a part of everything that happened to me. And I call my dad and let him know that it's time for us to come home. Now, I don't remember telling him that my mom kicked us out. I just made it very clear it was time for us to come home. And he made arrangements for the next day for us to be on an airplane um, back to Pittsburgh. Interestingly enough, nobody, of course, has a car because that's not the type of people these people are. And my dad asked me if there was a way for me to get to the airport. And I said there was, because when we arrived, the first day we arrived, the man, there was a man with my mother named Alan. He was a cowboy with a cowboy hat and cowboy boots and a big cowboy belt buckle. And <laughs> he took us um, to in, uh, San Diego Peak and had a fabulous dinner and had a really, really good time. And when he dropped us off at my mother's efficiency apartment, he handed me his business card. Now, what adult hands an 11-year-old little girl a business card? Yeah. And he says to me, honey, if you need anything, I don't care what it is. I don't care what time it is. You call me. I'll be here. For some unknown reason, I kept that business card. And when my dad asked me if I had a ride, I said yes. My next call was to Alan, and lo and behold, Alan showed up the next day early, took us to breakfast, got us, literally walked us onto the airplane, and then I never heard from Alan again. 
Oh my have gosh. No idea. Don't know his name, don't know his last name or anything. I do know that he was a physicist at, at Los Alamos. Um, and have no idea what he would have been doing with my mother because, you know, that completely different worlds. Um, but that was one of the things that being an aware child that I was conscious that Alan was an angel that was sent as long as I recognized it. And I did. And he was a godsend and I'm very blessed to have had Alan show up in my life when I did for a short period of time and to get us safely back to my dad. That's incredible. It's such a shame you haven't been able to find him. Do you think he had uh, some kind of like a, an understanding of what your mother was going through so that he knew that he needed to be there for you guys? I think he did. I think that at one point, Alan and my mother uh, were in a relationship. And I think because of the alcoholism, he moved on. Yeah. And I think the reason he showed up was, you know, my mom asked if she, we, she needed a ride and what, who she was picking up. And, you know, Alan knew that maybe it wasn't a good thing for my mom to be alone with two small girls. Wow. So you've moved on with your life. You went back to your dad. Did you have anything to do with your mother after that? I did. Um, I did not see my mother very often. So from the time I was 11 until she passed, I saw her three times total after that. Um, she called and, but she was also still an alcoholic. And so she would call and, you know, I was very respectful. You honor thy mother and thy father. And I would take my mother's calls. But at the same time, uh, when I was a teenager, I was tricked into talking to her. And when one of the things she did when she was drunk was blame me for the fact that my dad divorced her, blamed me that she was an alcoholic. So she blamed me for lots of things that I know was not my fault. But when you are 12 and 16, you don't necessarily realize that. Right. And so one of the phone calls, I ended up having a breakdown and, you know, my I remember throwing the phone. I remember screaming and crying. And I remember my dad rocking me until I fell asleep. And then he tried to lay me down and I woke up and would start crying again. So I remember my dad just holding me and rocking me um, that night that my mother had done this and I had that little mini breakdown. I ended up in therapy from the time I was 11 until I was 18. But Back in the early 90s, or excuse me, early 80s, they didn't quite know what to do with me. Um, child sexual abuse was not talked about. I know it was going on because the numbers are just staggering, but it wasn't talked about. And therapy really didn't know what to do with me. So the entire time I was in therapy, we never talked about the rape. I know they knew because I did tell my dad about six months after I got home what happened. And so I know he told the therapist um, and I had gone through a counselor and a therapist and a psychiatrist. I went through the gambit of, of all of them because they really didn't know what to do with me. I did learn a lot of what I called um, ways 
that I could make other people feel better. So I learned a lot of coping mechanisms through therapy and I learned what people wanted to hear so that they would be okay. Not that I would be okay, but they would be okay. But, and more importantly, they would leave me alone. And that was the ultimate goal was I wanted to be left alone. And then when I got into college, I, I was very vocal that I had trauma in my life. I didn't tell a lot of people what kind of trauma. I was just traumatized. And there were certain things you didn't want to do. You didn't want to come up behind me and tap me on the shoulder because I'd come around swinging and I didn't want to hurt you. So I warned people. And in college, I had a friend tell me that I liked being a victim and I was getting something from playing the victim. I got very upset with him <laughs> because who are, who are you to tell me about my victimhood? But he came from a very loving place. And so, again, being very aware, I figured I needed to think and pause and I journaled about it. And what I realized was I was getting something out of it. As long as I stayed a victim and I talked about victimhood, then people left me alone because, you know, people don't want to deal with victims. Right. <laughs> what do and you they say? don't know how to deal with right. victims. Right. Yeah. Right. What do you say? How do you deal with them? So because of that, I got left alone. So I figured I had to find a different way to be in the world and deal with people without pushing them away. And that day I became a survivor. And in becoming a survivor, some certain things happened. Number one, I took responsibility for my life from that moment forward. And what I meant by that was I couldn't blame my mother or the rape for the choices I was making now. Um, yes, I was traumatized. Yes, I may not make the best decisions because of the trauma, because I'm still fearful about things. But I can't blame my mom because my mom wasn't there in my life anymore. She wasn't telling me what to do. She wasn't making the bad choices that I was making. That was all me. And the second thing that happens is it empowered me. I realized I got my power back because now I was making the choices, whether they were good or bad, I was making those choices. And therefore I had the, the power that you feel is taken away from you from when you're traumatized, you feel like you need to get that back somehow and you don't ever think you're going to get it back. But really and truly, the only way to get it back is to realize and take responsibility from whatever moment you become a survivor and move forward. Right. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yep. That is absolutely beautiful. Now, I lived in a state of victimhood myself for quite a while after I escaped human trafficking and just kind of floated around and scraped by surviving. Yeah. But surviving mm -hmm. is not the same as being a survivor. And it's certainly not Correct. the same as living. Correct. And, you know, we're all meant to be here in our school to live and thrive. And just because bad things happen and we are traumatized doesn't mean that we aren't supposed to do more and be more because we all came to earth with a purpose. We all came to earth with a passion and we're supposed to continue on despite whatever tragedy, tragedy has happened to us in the past. Yes. Yep. What all have you done since then, since you decided to become a survivor, uh, to really kind of uh, jump into the deep end of that pool and, and really learn what you needed to figure out? 
the main thing was learning how to recognize that a lot of what was going on inside my head, I was causing. And for example, my mother passed away in uh, 2012, and yet I still kept hearing her voice in my head that I was, you know, if I was left alone, I wouldn't survive, that I always needed people. And at, you know, I was, I think it was in 2014, I realized, dang it, she's still in my head, but she's dead. So obviously I'm the one that's pushing the play button on that tape that, and I'm the one that keeps pushing it and I'm the one that keeps listening to it. So what, what do I need to do to change this? And, and what I figured out was I could record over that tape. And so now when I play that tape, that's not what I don't hear my mother's voice. I hear my voice and I hear positive statements, whether it is understanding that we're reframing the things that were negative in our past to something that was positive. So, for example, reframing the fact that I was raped by three men, the reality is there's also I survived being raped by three men. I survived being abandoned my, by my mother in, on the streets of Albuquerque, New Mexico. So. Yes, I was abandoned, but I survived that. And making sure that we look at the positive things that came from that, because any survivor story is full of positive things that have occurred because of decisions that we made along our journey, along the healing path. Right. We're still alive. We need to celebrate Correct. that. We need to recognize why we're still alive and our own resilience through it. Exactly. Yeah. So you wrote this amazing book. Um, I'm going to have you talk about that for just a moment. But uh, what was the inspiration behind you writing this book? <laughs> there was no inspiration. Let me be very clear. I had been asked to write this book in my 20s. And it was not just no, it was hell no. This was not something I was going to do. And then the summer before I turned 50 years old, I became pregnant with a book. And I sat down at my computer and started typing. And I typed over 170,000 words. My book, Raven Transcending Fear, is only about 60,000 words. So I did a lot of editing. And I think what that outpouring was, was the final healing process for me to realize all the things that I have overcome. And it was very cathartic th and very helpful. And the whole idea was that I wanted to be able to help others with the bridge. You know, they can use the bridge that I've already built because there is no need to, to wallow in the pit of despair like I did. There is no need to have all the suicidal thoughts that I did. It's about being able to recognize I need help and then work through and understand that your healing journey is your personal healing journey and you will come to the other side of it. There are ways to move across faster and there are ways not to stay in the pit of despair for as long as I have. And those are things that the book Raven Transcending Fear tells. Very cool. You describe it as part memoir, part self-help guide. I think there's so many people that can really benefit from not just hearing your story, but reading your book and, and really starting to dig into themselves too. 
Um, have you Thank got you. a part of your book that you would like to read for our audience? I'm going to read the beginning. And the reason is because it really is clear that we need to remember who we authentically are. And just because we've had trauma doesn't mean that our authenticity was ever taken away from us. So here we go. As all children are, I was born unafraid. I came into the world knowing that I am a being of light. I understood that I am worthy. I recognize that I am here to love and be loved. I came knowing what I'm supposed to do, aware of my full potential, confident and ready to fulfill my purpose, moving forward into the unknown without fear. Fear is a learned behavior. This unknown shaped me. The family I was born into in November 1968 was the first unknown I encountered. Born into earth school, my parents gave me a name, Terry Marie. They gave me a religion, Lutheran. I am born with an ethnic into a family that has its own set of baggage, and they inadvertently pass on to me. This new family told me who I am, not necessarily allowing me to develop as God intended, as a human being of love. Seeing pictures of myself taken when I was little, I see a spunky, carefree individual whose light is so bright I glow. There's a glint in my eye and a big smile on my round, chubby face. The little girl I see in the picture is ready to take on the world with confidence and fearlessness. I know where I am going and what I intend to do with my life. That's the first two or three paragraphs of the book. And the reason I feel that's so important is because I am authentically who I was meant to be, despite the trauma I've had. And one of the things that happens with any type of trauma and just growing up is that we put on masks and armor so that we feel that we can fit in. And that's something the ego does to try to protect us. And then we start feeling fragmented and we think the fragmentation is because of our trauma, but really and truly what we're fragmenting is our authenticity because all the masks and armors are light that was shining so brightly when we were little is now going to be fragmented because of all the masks and armors. So you only get these rays of light shining through until you take off the mask and armor. And that is where, my book comes in. It, it helps you to take off the mask and armor and be that authentic person that you were always meant to be. You know, one of those uh, sheets of armor is definitely the victimhood too. Correct. When you learn how to take that off. You learn how to be more who you're supposed to be, which is right. pretty cool. And you have a podcast of your own, Soul Solutions. Can you tell us a little bit about that podcast? What do you talk about on that podcast? So Soul Solutions is a 15, no more than 20 minute podcast where I give you bite-sized pieces of things that you can put into action in your daily life. So for example, the month of March, we dealt with triggers, emotional triggers, trauma triggers, um, stress triggers, and ways to overcome those triggers in your life because it takes practice and you have to have strategies to deal with triggers. And so that's what the podcast is about. It's about giving you those bite-sized pieces that you can implement into your life to help you overcome your fears and limiting beliefs. That is amazing. 
thank you for doing that. I know a lot of people really need that. I imagine you probably have a, a decent following over there. You just gained a few more subscribers, I can guarantee. Thank you. <laughs> so there's always one last question that I always ask my, my interviewees before I let them go. And it's absolutely my most favorite question. Um, and after you get done answering this one, maybe you can tell us where we can go to pick up your book. But my last question is, what is one thing that you love about yourself that's not related to your physical appearance? I love that I am passionately in service to others to help them overcome their fears and learning beliefs. It's something that brings me such joy when I am coaching somebody and they have an aha moment and even in interviews, my husband always tells me after I do an interview, you're still glowing because this is this is where I shine. And all the authenticity that pours out of me, literally my body temperature goes up. I, my, I need no blush. If you saw my face, you would see that I am bright red and glowing because I'm passionate about what I'm doing. And because of being your authentic self. One of the things I did um, after I turned 50 was I let my hair um, go gray. And since doing that, I have complete strangers coming up to me, me literally crossing rooms to tell me how beautiful my hair is. Now, I'm one of those people that think I have really thin stringy hair <laughs> and <laughs> spent, you know, would spend lots of money to get perms to make sure I had curls or body or everything because my hair is perfectly straight, which most Native Americans do. But unlike most Native Americans, I have thin hair, not that not nice, really thick, luscious hair. So for somebody to walk across the room and tell me these things, it's because I am still glowing from my authenticity and that my license shining so brightly. That's absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Thank you. And whenever I post about a podcast, I take the photos of, <clears throat> of the author and I do share that also. And I'm sitting here looking at your photo. You're standing here with this beautiful, radiant smile, really cute brown leather hat, beautiful white dress, all this absolutely stunning jewelry and your silver hair. You've got one strand of this silver hair that has been picked <laughs> up by the wind and it's just kind of flowing off to the side. And it just, the second I saw this photo, it's like, oh my gosh, she's just beautiful. I can absolutely see that. I can see exactly you. what you're saying. <laughs> and Terry, <laughs> where, where can people find your book? My book is available on Amazon and you can go to raventranscendingfear.com and order it as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much for spending this time with me today. I really appreciate you and I appreciate your story. And I know that you and your coaching life and your blog and your book, you're going to be able to help so many people. Thank you very much, Amanda. It was a pleasure being with you this afternoon. If you've enjoyed tonight's episode, please make sure you check out the episode description. There you're going to find links on how you can learn more about this guest, links to connect with them on social media, and how to support the podcast. Remember, I don't get paid to do this. My boss is a bit tight-fisted, but I can say that I work for myself. In short, this show really is all about the guest. If you've enjoyed their interview, please feel free to let them know. 
You can also tune into my other podcast, Growth from Darkness, which is co-hosted by a lovely lady from Australia. We talk about what trauma responses are and healthy ways to move beyond the past. For more information, just go to growthfromdarkness.com.